Hello and welcome to the first Full Fat podcast, the official podcast of Full Fat Videos. It's a very special episode, isn't it, today, Chris Fulsell? Uh, yes, it is. It's a very special episode. Not only is it episode one, but it's the first episode oh. after... Well, uh, you, you just creamed my corn because I was going to say it was the 100th episode for banter, but... Um, Within seconds, we've already uh, we've had a gaffe, haven't we? It's okay. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll cut this out later, won't we? Well, we'll edit you didn't this. Tell me beforehand that you're going to do any jokes. So I thought this was a serious. I thought this was commode and mayo. Shit, you know, like. I was going to do it. I was going to do it and drop it, you know, and just see how you react. But well, no, I'm um, not very good at improv, you know. So it's just like one of those things that, like, I just don't really. Uh, I've, I'm just not very accustomed to. Would you say this is probably the greatest start to a podcast series ever? Uh, no, I wouldn't actually, um, because I was recently watching the uh, Joe Rogan. <laughs> <Okay, laughs> <laughs> the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah, this isn't the full fat podcast. This is actually the full fat experience. It is. It's not a podcast. No. It's an experience. Um, <laughs> no dissing to Joe Rogans if they're out there and in, are indeed listening. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I don't mind him. It's just... Uh, it's I, just don't really, the, I, I don't really know him personally, so uh, <laughs> what can I say? Um, yeah, so this is the full fat videos podcast and Chris and I will be convening every week to catch up, shoot the shit... Chat call. Can we swear on this, actually? Oh, we can, actually. We can? Yeah, it's not like in our videos where we have to do those obnoxious bleeps. Oh, my God, amazing. <laughs> oh, I'm going to test it out. Shit. Wanker. Fuck. I would like to note that my parents watch every episode of everything oh, okay. we do, so uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps not for... Uh, Sorry, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, without <laughs> further ado, um, should, we, should we just dive in? And uh, I think basically, guys, this is going to... We'll, we'll be working out the kinks across the next couple of weeks, um, maybe adding some formats and some structure to this, but I think uh, you know we're flying off the sheet of our pants with episode one, really. Uh, yes, that's correct. Um, and obviously, at the moment, <laughs> Uh, we're mainly going to be talking about Doctor Who. And as, if you've not clocked already from our community post, this is our uh, version of Look Who's Talking, uh, last year's viral hit Doctor Who show, which was uh, one of the most highest speed vids. Uh, you probably saw it in YouTube Rewind, um, except, uh, I mean, th this is the great thing. No one watched YouTube Rewind 2019. So, yeah, uh, you know. so we actually were in it, but no one watched it, so we didn't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, People they, were too busy well, disliking it. They, they, they watched it for 30 seconds, hit dislike, and we were like, what, second 40? Yeah, so, I yeah. think we were just after Billie Eilish for most viewed uh, Doc 2 content. Right, yeah, yeah. And we were just before uh, PewDiePie's wedding, weren't we? Yes, yeah. yeah cause, I remember uh, that. We actually got married and uh, not, not as much fanfare though. So a uh, bit of a shame there. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so what have you been watching recently, Matt? <laughs> well, Chris, I'm glad you asked. Um, let me just check my letterbox app. Uh, oh, no, wait. I, I can tell you off the top of my head. I, um, I re-watched the first half of The Big Lebowski on the tube this morning on my commute. Um, have you seen The Big Lebowski, Chris? Uh, no, I have not. All oh, right, well, uh, moving on. <laughs> oh, well, uh, why don't you tell the lovely folks what we watched together last night at your request because you told me it was amazing. Um, I didn't tell you it was amazing. I told you it was very good. It was yeah. a rat race, um, a classic early 2000s comedy with uh, John Cleese, Rowan Atkinson, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Seth Green among other mm. early 2000s stars. Do you think you were also exaggerating when you said it was very good? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know what? I remembered rat race as being like hilarious every five minutes and actually it just turns out that it's got about I'd say about eight set pieces that are really good and then two hours kind of where some of the stuff doesn't work and also like one of the strangest endings of any um, comedy I've ever seen mainly because it comes out of nowhere and ends on a sentimental note 
I would agree. Um, there are some great set pieces. Like, I mean, we're not just saying this to plug milk, but the cow sequence was pretty good. Yeah, um, um, the Hitler sequence is the best sequence in the film. Would uh, you like John... to elaborate? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, John Lovitz, uh, the, the premise of Rat Race is that um, each of them has won a lucky token at a casino and there's $2 million in a locker and they're all racing to kind of be the first ones to get it while uh, some billionaires like bet on them. Uh, so John Lovitz is there and uh, hasn't told his family he's doing this. So they just think they're going on a long drive for their family vacation. Uh, so they're cruising on down the road and uh, his daughter says, um, oh, look, a Barbie museum as they pass. Um, and he doesn't want to go, but his wife insists they take a break. Um, and so lo and behold, it smash cuts to them at the museum of not the doll, but uh, Klaus Barbie, a noted neo-Nazi, in fact, noted Nazi, um, <laughs> and uh, one of Hitler's most beloved disciples, John Lovitz, of course, and his family being Jewish. Uh, so they escape in Hitler's car. Um, for uh, reasons that are too convoluted to explain. Do they, if I remember rightly, they find Hitler's harmonica in the back seat? Yes, they find Hitler's harmonica and Hitler's lipstick. So um, John Lovitz uh, <laughs> tries it, and then, no, John Lovitz's wife tries it and kisses him on the cheek, so he rubs it off on the steering wheel. And they pass some bikers, and uh, he accidentally um, offends them because he's doing a gesture or impression of something to his wife, and doesn't, and which is the middle finger, and doesn't notice he's actually pointing at a gang of bikers. So they start attacking him and his car, and he slams his head on the um, steering wheel, gets some lipstick above his top lip, and also burns his mouth in the process. The car then crashes and lands at a World War II reenactment where he steps <laughs> out um, in front of a crowd of veterans with a small moustache above his top lip, um, ranting and raving in an incomprehensible language because tongues burn and people think he's Hitler. That's the Hitler sequence. How, how is that? Was that succinct? Uh, that was pretty great. And then there was a cameo by a guy that really looked like Robert De Niro, so much so that we were convinced it was Robert De Niro, but then it turned out after Googling it, it wasn't Robert well, De Niro. Well, I was about to say Robert De Niro wouldn't appear, appear in something of such like low calibre, but he was in the Meet the Parents franchise. For, hey, uh, I love Meet the Parents. I love Meet the Parents, but it's not exactly like, it's not exactly like I mean, the guy's won an Oscar. It's not cinema, it's more of a theme park movie. No, I would say that, yeah. yeah. I, I, it doesn't really compare to his work, Dirty Grandpa, does it? No, or his work in um, the seminal uh, social commentary about disenchanted loners, Joker. Um, that's true that's which of course uh, is wholly original and is I don't not think a it's as good as The Intern by Rob De Niro <laughs> well, not by Rob De Niro starring Rob De Niro <laughs> is it starring Robert De Niro? Uh, yeah and I think Anne Hathaway does not have I thought that had Seth Rogen in oh that's The Interview that's The Interview yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think for a second you were thinking about The Internship but I think that's the Vince Vaughn Owen Wilson comedy about Google. Well, I would have known that because I've, you know I love Vince Vaughn movies, as you know. The breakup with Jennifer Aniston in particular, Dodgeball, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. all great films. Failure to launch. That's uh, actually not. That's one. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, speaking of Matthew McConaughey, I also recently saw The Gentleman, um, which was pretty standard Guy Ritchie fare. Um, it was a laugh. I'm not going to lie. I had a good time. Um, Hugh Grant really steals the show. Um, oh, another bottle, yummy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've not seen it, but I, you know, I, I still think he achieved core cinematic perfection with King Arthur. Um, Legend what? of the Sword. Yeah, you have to say the full title. <laughs> I was like, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, uh, which somehow managed to get David Beckham in, which is still one of the best cameos. Oh, yeah. It's up there with Ed Sheeran going, "It's a new one." In Game of Thrones, for like terrible sort of cameos. He's actually quite good in Yesterday. Um, uh, Ed, Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Yeah, he actually plays himself as a douche. Um, which oh, gives okay. me the impression that he's actually probably a nice guy because only nice people tend to play. Oh, I'm sure he's all right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Well, I'm lying. I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of his music. But I obviously like his music more than you. Oh no, I, I have can't a few stand tracks it. on my phone. Oh, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> 
I'm in love with the shape of you, Chris. <laughs> Can't tell if we're um, if we're churning out comedy gold here or just slipping into David Brent's. <laughs> um, I would say slipping into David Brent's. I also recently watched The Heartbreak Kid, not the 2007 Ben Stiller version. Uh, um, you mean the superior version? <laughs> Um, no, the 1972 uh, Elaine May version. I think I said that right. Um, I hadn't seen it before, and a friend recommended it to me, and it was uh, absolutely fantastic. If you want to see this film, it's actually the the whole thing is on YouTube, uh, as is her other feature, Mikey and Nikki. Um, it's about a guy who basically is like desperate to sleep with um, this woman he knows so much that he marries her like immediately. And then on the honeymoon, he realises he's having second thoughts and then he becomes obsessed with this other woman. And then he basically... It's in a time before Facebook and the internet, so he can make such lies as, for example, he spends the whole day with um, with this other woman and then he comes back to the hotel room and tells his then-wife uh, that uh, there was a car crash and he had to spend all day at the courts to uh, be a witness. <laughs> um, and he just like keeps spinning these like ridiculous lies. But you're not meant to like him. You're meant to sort of understand that he's you know a bit of a douche whereas i haven't seen the ben stiller version but i watched the trailer and it seems like they're going for the opposite flavor um, yeah so ben stiller basically um in this version he meets this girl i think he like she gets robbed or something right and he like bumps into her and then he goes on a few dates with her and basically like it turns out it's something like um he's like oh the time is running out and he gets convinced by his like dad and like his friends to marry her they're like oh you need to lock her away because they're like she's really hot like you'll never do better than her um so they get married and then straight away it turns out she has a really nasally singing voice and she sings all the time which i think is in the original isn't it that she like sings really annoyingly or something in in the original like it it seems like the remake's missing the point because i feel like in the original it's more it's his fault that he was so desperate to get hitched because he wanted to get laid and then she's basically like a sweet woman they're just not compatible but then he like you know he, he descends into all this chaos by lying and lying and lying oh so see in this version um she has such a high sex drive that he keeps damaging his pelvis and uh, she's also a cocaine addict and it turns out the robbery at the beginning was actually by one of her exes and like she doesn't really have a job and right she was like so how do i put this she's so awful that there's no level of sympathy which means all the deviant stuff that ben stiller does <laughs> It's kind of just like justified because see, like I she's see. so aggressively awful. I mean that sounds absolutely awful compared to the original. Um, it also ends perfectly. Um, I don't really want to say any more, but it just doesn't go the way you expect. Um, but I would definitely check it out if if you have indeed seen the two thousand seven version, maybe more so, just to wipe that palate cleanser, uh, get it get it off your chest. How does it tie into the MCU? The Heartbreak Kid. Yeah. Um, well, that was the thing I was talking about, is even though it was in 1972, um, at the end of the movie, Nick Fury pops up, a young Samuel L. Jackson, um, fresh out the womb, basically, and he's still got the eye patch, and uh, which is a weird continuity error with Captain Marvel, but nobody cares about the movie anyway. Um, so basically, he's like, yeah, you're the heartbreak kid, um, and we need to go break some alien hearts, namely Thanos' heart. Um, yeah, and that's, is, is this, uh, Chris, just stop me right here, is this funny? Um, yes. Yes, I'm sure. Fantastic, it's fantastic. I'm I, I thought so. Because <laughs> it's, it's nothing vicious. It was nothing vicious. But, um, uh, Please, Everett. I, <laughs> Milligan. 
sessions. Um, <laughs> what's um, what's bizarre to me is that like in thirty years, if the MCU still exists, which uh, given Mickey Mouse's current empire, it probably will. <laughs> like there will be films that old that you'll be watching. You'll be like, oh yeah, the MCU's really evolved now. Uh, now that I get downloaded into my mind or whatever form we're consuming things. Do you think if the Mickey Mouse empire does crumble? Mickey Mouse will have in fact not have died and it will be revealed that he stayed alive on a robot arm and um, there's, we actually don't find out how he survived but somehow Mickey Mouse has returned and uh, he ends up superseding whoever the villain was meant to be in, in, real, in the real world. Is uh, no, about? because that would be terrible and contrived and uh, just generally no one would want to watch that. <laughs> You're right. I think it's far more likely that Mickey Mouse was due a redemption arc and they worked very hard <laughs> to redeem Mickey Mouse and uh, they did a whole character arc with Mickey Mouse and then a past version of Mickey Mouse shot the present version of Mickey Mouse and yet somehow Mickey right. Mouse has returned, which of course brings us on to the topic of today's <laughs> podcast, which is the two-part Doctor Who premiere, wow. Spyfall. That was a smooth segue. <laughs> was it? Was it at all? I feel like it was garbage. Well, I, I was having a great time listening to you spin that yarn, <laughs> wondering where it was going. Um, Spyfall. Yeah, Spyfall. Um, so, uh, as you know, last year we did a series called Look Who's Talking, which uh, involved us uh, talking about Doctor Who. Um, and so we thought we'd uh, transfer this over to the podcast. And the next few episodes, up until uh, this current run ends, we'll uh, first start off with this preamble, which we've just done. And then they'll just sort <laughs> of segue organically, as we just did, into Look Who's Talking. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I guess beyond Look Who's Talking, um, we'll do the preamble and then the podcast will just abruptly stop. Uh, I think the plan about. is to cover other TV shows and films. Oh, and, uh, right, right, okay. All right, right you are, right you are. <laughs> um, I was thinking um, if we did a similar thing with Black Mirror, we could call it Mirror Mirror. <laughs> no, you don't like that one. <laughs> no, no, okay. Well, uh, move, moving swiftly on. Um, well, look, if you think that title's bad, just wait till you hear Spyfall. <laughs> yeah, um, so... I couldn't believe when they announced that Doctor Who's... Well, there's two things that I was in disbelief at. One, that... They would announce a Doctor Who episode that was based on James Bond, which was the laziest title I've ever heard, which is up there with the Rachnids in the UK for appalling jokes. But two, that it would arguably end up the best story of Jodie Whittaker's <laughs> tenure, which I'm still in shock about. Um, so am I, because Spyfall as a title doesn't quite work, because... Skyfall is already referring to spies, isn't it? Because it's a James Bond reference. Yes. So why did you call it Spyfall? No, because you might as well have just gone the whole way out and called it Spy Spy. It's a parody <laughs> of Spyfall or any spy movie from Spy with Spy. Like it's just like it's just not a pun. What about No Time to Die? Times in the title. Oh, yeah. Time. See Doctor that would be better. No time yeah. to regenerate. Oh god, Chip will probably do that way. So give him ideas. But um, I mean. To cut a long story short, I can't believe we actually enjoyed it. Um, I don't really know where to start with it. Neither can I. Um, the first episode, I was pleasantly surprised. There were some things I didn't quite enjoy about it, but I think it ended on a really strong note. And then I enjoyed the second episode even more, and I think that ended on a fucking fantastic note. Um, I I think what it was for me was, just um, before we get more into details, it felt as if everything that I kind of had a problem with in the first series, so sort of an underdevelopment of the characters, not really knowing who the Doctor was or like what her motivations were, and a lack of like a clear arc or like a big threat, 
all of that seemed to kind of almost get course corrected in this episode. Yes, I would say that like some of the kind of weaker dialogue elements are still kind of there of the Chibnall era. Yes, I would say the characters still aren't developed as much as they can be. But there was some stuff in place across this two-parter that sort of worked out a lot of kinks. And I think a lot of the main problems that we actually had with Series 11. Yes, I agree. Um, it was fantastic to finally see... Jodie Whittaker get her teeth into some proper Doctor material. For example, when... Um, is it Barton? Barton, yeah. The scene at the party with uh, Barton, uh, aka Lenny Henry, um, where she's basically just, like, taking none of his bullshit, and he keeps trying to, like, you know, play the nice guy, play the, oh, yeah, we're just at this party, I don't know what you're talking about, and she's like, no, I'm on to you, basically. That was great. Um, and then, obviously, when the Master was revealed, Mr. Sasha Dewan, um, that was fantastic. And then, in the second episode... They they met, what, like three or four times in different time zones? And I think every single scene, every single time they were in the same room, it was fantastic. I mean, I think this was just an episode that was just bursting with ideas from the get-go. I mean, straight away you had the spy concept, which I thought on paper was a bit lame, but actually produced a lot of fun, like the motorcycle chase. Or the, the laser gadgets. shoes. The laser <laughs> shoes. The la- we'll get back to laser shoes. Graham is still MVP They companion, were made but... for Bradley Walsh. Yeah, they actually were. <laughs> you can tell that it, the entire set piece, in fact, both set pieces with them were just him improv They were just like, just fuck them out with these <laughs> shoes and go, oh, 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 and just have a bit of fun. It felt a bit like Moffat. Uh, it felt a bit like Chibnall trying to do a Moffat episode. Yeah, but it was weird because the opening part felt like RTD. It was very large scale. I mean, that's that's one of the first things I noticed. I mean, how many different locations did they actually go to across this yeah. two-parter? The first episode alone, the scale of it, the cinema... Like, this is the first time that I felt that it has felt cinematic in a way that I feel like Series 11 had moments where it felt like that, like in the Ghost Monument when the ship fell out of the sky. Yes. Then often it felt quite cheap in terms of its sets and things like that. This this is the first time since I think maybe like the Series 9 trailer that this has felt like really high in scale, really, really global. I think particularly like when uh, the Doctor started like time hopping in the second episode, that was really nice. Also, what I really liked about that is uh, when she met, is it Ada Lovelace? Yes. Um, and she was going like, oh, I can't find my TARDIS and this stuff. I was like, oh, okay, I really hope that the A plot isn't the companion's trying to stop Barton and the B-plot is her stuck in this time zone trying to get back. And then immediately, as soon as I thought that, the master popped up and then he started killing people and then he made the Doctor kneel. That was fantastic. I I feel like they've already crafted a really good hero-villain relationship out of these new incarnations in just two episodes. I think this is absolutely what Whitaker's been missing because we we said in our video on Series 11 that Whitaker often feels like she could just like magic away anything but maybe that was less to do with the writing of the Doctor more to do with the threat levels I mean she was taking on things like the Pating and the, the giant spiders which as Doctor Who threats go are quite weak yeah. whereas this like moments like the do- the Master strangling her and trying to throw her off the top of a building yeah. or the Master actually just gunning down people in front of her for the first time and especially I think what it comes down to for me with her characterization was the fact that they were in a plane obviously it's a cliffhanger so you have to have some level of suspense but that she didn't kind of the bomb wasn't even the cliffhanger she failed to defuse the bomb yeah. like she messed up in that set piece yeah um, and, and, and that would have been first. enough wouldn't it the ticking clock would have been enough to the next episode but they, they took it a step, step further I mean it was like three steps further I mean yeah. the, the reveal of the master alone I was expecting the credits to roll yep. then I thought him saying there's a bomb on board I was like right the credits are rolling the bomb went off and you thought right the plane's falling then the creatures appeared yep. also uh, it did a really good job of making the master an evil cunt again can I say that? Uh, yes, you are. I probably shouldn't say that too often. An evil, uh, an evil lad. A very um, evil man. Because um, I found that in the in the last couple of stories of the Master or Missy, 
um, she became more of an anti-hero, didn't she? And, yes, and that, again, absolutely. that was kind of her arc, but um, I think it was really refreshing to see the master just enjoying killing people. I mean, he was walking around as a Nazi at one point, and, which um, we did laugh at, didn't we? Well, I mean, I thought that was brilliantly addressed because you made a comment during the episode, obviously. <laughs> you were like, how is he a Nazi? And then the fact that they were... It was just little things like that because I felt like in the past series, they would have just gone, oh, just go with it, which I'm often happy to do with Doctor Who. It's Doctor Who, it's ridiculous. But the fact that they well, you, bothered... You, 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 I, I think I literally burst out laughing going, what? That doesn't make <laughs> yeah. any sense. Whereas I was like, it's Doctor Who, let's just go with it. It's funny, the costume works. But the fact he must that have he... hypnotised them, I think that's what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah or something. <laughs> just presume that but the fact that they managed to just go yeah that's what i've done i was like okay like yeah there's a there's an attention to detail here in place of what i felt other than the woman who fell to earth last series were scripts that felt rushed Mm. they felt like they had no concepts behind them if anything this episode and we'll get more into its flaws in a bit this episode was overstuffed with actual ideas the kasavin were an incredibly like scary threat particularly I think less so in episode 2 but in episode 1 they were proper menace that set piece outside well we'll call him the master but it was O at that point yes house felt genuinely terrifying in, in a way that that Doctor Who hasn't felt since Moffat's been doing his kind of gothic, gothic monsters which is a long time ago now I also like they didn't turn out to be something from classic because also once you've done the master reveal it's like we've got a classic villain in this story we I, don't need another one I was so worried I saw so many people on forums saying maybe it's the Cybermen coming through the rift and I was thinking well, no. we haven't gotten a Cybermen master story before, really, so it might be quite a refreshing idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just did a look of contempt, but I realised this isn't filmed anymore. But that's the thing, like, that would have been so derivative, and part of me was thinking, that was strong, is all the resolutions to this going to be just stupid? Yeah. Or is it just going to be fan service, or is it just going to be hokey? And actually, there was a lot of clever kind of ways to subvert expectations, particularly when it came to the fact that the second part kind of subverted uh, your expectations in terms of its setting, you know, hopping for all these different time periods, giving us something different to the first half. And it really kind of felt like, whilst these were episodes which are tonally kind of opposites, it was surprisingly skilled of Chibnall to actually manage to tie all these disparate elements together and not make it feel like it was like, this is part one. And this is a completely different part two, which sometimes I felt like Moffat went too far with with some of his two-parters where they were so tonally different. They almost felt like you'd get two different stories that didn't... And it felt like he was doing it to be clever a little bit. Exactly. I also think um, in terms of uh, people of colour being represented on the show, how interesting was it that the Master's been the first POC uh, time lord out of the Doctor and the Master... And also, I think they played with it in an interesting way, not only by making him a Nazi and calling that out, but you know when he gets punished at the end and he's like, yeah, I had to be here for like 77 years or whatever. It was not fun living in this century. And like the look on his face, you know what's implied there because obviously it wouldn't have been easy to live with that face through that century, would it? No, completely. And, and I also just think it's interesting because I feel like the Master often acts as a character that can like test the water for those kind of changes. I mean, Missy, I in many ways, was a stepping stone to a female Doctor. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting now that they're sort of testing the water to see what they can do with people of colour when it comes to um, the show. And I think, as an actor, Sasha was absolutely phenomenal. And um, I don't necessarily think that maybe for me it had quite the sort of the the instant impact that something like Missy's appearance in Dark Water and Death in Heaven did but I think by the end I really felt like I knew who this character was and as you Mm. said earlier we've really got an interesting dynamic here and particularly with his kind of aggressive side which plays really well with Whittaker's femininity yes and that's the kind of master doctor dynamic we obviously haven't seen before also um again 
he does things that are like categorically evil. I mean, should we talk about the reveal at the end that he torched Gallifrey? Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean, you said part of the episode, weren't you? I wonder if the master's done that. And I think I'd kind of gotten a bit used to the Missy core master where it's like, you know, she's kind of, she's kind of the doctor's mate. And although they are, there's, there's a little bit of frenemy chemistry in this one. Like there's no holds barred at the end. I don't think there's a single episode featuring Missy where she does something evil that isn't relative to just literally getting the doctor's attention. Yeah. Which, whereas this felt like the plan existed before the doctor. Yes. And I mean, he even referred to her as, what did he say? Something like I got rid of those little insects or those little people in the way. It didn't feel like the the master's plan just came down to, well, the dots will eventually step in and we can have a bit of a spar and it'll be fun. It felt like he was just planning on doing this anyway. Yes, yes. Um, and I love that we got the answer to what's happened to Gallifrey straight away. Again, there was no mention of Gallifrey last season. No talk between the companions and the Doctor about where she came from, you know, like who she is. And I, I like they're finally confronting that, um, both between those characters and then with Whitaker herself. Like the moment where she goes... And then steps out, and you see it just like burnt to to the ground. It was awesome. But that was some of her best acting, and she didn't even say a word. Yeah, and um, it was really. It, it, and you know what? This episode, I've I've always kind of struggled with Whitaker in a sense of feeling like I get who her character is. But there are moments that I felt like in this episode where I kind of, for the first time, there was like, oh, I get. That's what fifteen does. Uh, sorry, thirteen does. Mm. Um, even um, even things like we have actually spoiled that. Jodie Whitaker, Whitaker has been cast as the 15th Doctor. As oh, well. yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, actually, technically, if you include the Metacrisis Doctor and the War Doctor, she is the 15th Doctor. Is she? Yeah, um, she is. She yeah, is. she is. Yeah. Wow. Well, a bunch of convoluted bullshit. I guess. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, really managed to uh, really managed to uh, get my way over that era, didn't I? With that paved in those cracks. But um, you know, particularly things like just at the beginning, watching her um, work on the TARDIS and having a bit of a mm. laugh. I like watching her that panic that she had in the in the airplane again, not to just keep coming back to that scene, but that felt distinctly, it it, it felt kind of like something that Smith would do, but it felt distinctly thirteen in that she's kind of got this era of. Oh, everything's whimsical. So to see that kind of be shattered by, yes. oh no, kind of. Well, she was brought to her knees, well, literally at one point. Yeah. Also, I like how that kind of tied into the ending of the second episode where, you know, in the earlier scene, the master kind of forced her onto her knees. And then when there's that transmission in the TARDIS of the master, she kind of willingly falls to her knees, doesn't she? Because she's listening to this cataclysmic news. I thought that was like a really nice... Uh, payoff to the earlier scene. His performance in that scene was his best moment in the episode as well. The way that he it's looks fantastic. really, really sad, and then you still got that master at the end where he goes, "It wasn't easy for me, so why would mm. I? Why would I help you now?" I just thought that was such a brilliant. So it felt so distinct to his character, um, and I'm really, really excited and hoping that this isn't a bit like Missy, where we get a one-off appearance, an appearance again, and then just nothing. Like yeah. I want this to be a recurring threat because what this episode really did was give. Whitaker, someone to spar against who felt like an equal, even yes. more so than the Dalek in Resolution, which t- once it got shell into its shell, never felt like as much reflect no. as when it was out of the shell. Um, I, I think as well, since we established in this episode that he will just pop up wherever she is in time just to screw with her, why not just do that in a random episode this season? You know, like episode five I mean you could make up. it a random reveal I mean clearly they were committed to that because as we noticed there were shots in this episode that we used abundantly in the trailer which included oh mm. which, they even co- which they wouldn't have even needed to because they could have announced him as just a companion yeah. they could have announced him as anything and you know what for a show that famously can't resist 
telling you the big twists. Like when John Sim was announced for Series 10, they plastered it everywhere. I was shocked that um, they did such a good job of hiding it. Like I was actually shocked when he revealed himself to be the master. I think in no small part because they made him feel like a really likable one-off companion. He felt a bit like, you know, like Canton, someone like that, where you're like, oh, he's obviously come along for the adventure and then he'll probably not show up again at the end of the story. Oh, that is. Um, and you actually cared about him. You actually wanted him to come along. Um, so it did feel like the, the rug was pulled out from under you when he was revealed. And then there's just little touches when we watched it twice, like mm. his reaction to the TARDIS, where rather than sort of being overwhelmed, he goes, hmm. Yeah, and he sort of yeah. looks at it, and it's not a look on rewatch of kind of wonder. It's a look of, wow, I wouldn't design it like that. Yes. And then there's the, of course, when C gets shot, um, he oh, says, oh. yes, yes. Um, Doesn't she ask, who is he working for? Yeah, who are, the, yeah, who are you yeah. working for? And then C gets shot, and he goes, oh. <laughs> yeah. Which is just brilliant as well like there's, there was there were so many little things however i don't think everything quite worked no I, I think this was definitely a complete step in the right direction especially after the last series which was heartbreaking for both of us um particularly since i had the same production team and it was turned around pretty quickly again it was basically a year wasn't it even though it slipped into 2020 i really didn't think it would be any good um, i've got to be honest um so i was pleasantly shocked however i do agree with you um, one of the things I didn't like too much about it was the way it was shot. Uh, way too many close-ups for a lot of the, the sequences, to the point where it was like almost as if it was trying to hide the locations. Do you, do you get what I mean? I mean, there were some times, especially in the past settings, where you could tell they were on a set, which yes. I suppose not to his famous, but it's very, hard. it's very hard for me to point out, other than a few absolute classics that are near impeccable, like... Um, heaven sent for sometimes it not to feel like you're shooting on the yeah. lot but I think particularly the Walton Paris for me when they were outside you could tell it was a studio lot yes and you could tell very and you could tell they were concealing it and but then for everything like that there was some spectacular shots and there was some spectacular like things like the shots panning up the Eiffel Tower or the yeah, plane sequence cool. again but I agree with you it was the close-ups wasn't it? it it's not so much for me the spectacle uh, shots it was me it was me like for me it was the conversations they were having like you know when they were in O's barn it was all just like these intense close-ups and you know when you when you're just cutting to close-up to close-up to close-up all the time you kind of lose the power of a close-up and um also I think it, it doesn't really work for a character like the doctor who's often running around the room zipping about looking at a million different things to have her constantly in close-up kind of negates that I mean I'm still confused why they insist on shooting all the TARDIS sequences in close-up, are they, are they scared of the design or something? Because yeah. Capaldi's TARDIS was famous for tracking shots all the time. Tracking shots, spinning shots, Smith, famous. For, and they, they, they seem to have... I know they're trying to get a new look and obviously distance themselves from um, and, and make the era feel distinct. But for me, it just doesn't feel right having TARDIS sequences that are so close that you don't really get to see anything. Like, I couldn't tell you what the control panel's well, like. Well, I don't feel like we've spent any time with this new TARDIS. I don't feel like it has a soul, even though we've seen it for a season. They spend such little time there. And to be honest, I'm not, I'm not that big on the design. Um, I think that doesn't help because once you go to the Smith and Capaldi Tardises, and they've got all these levels and it's shot in like this big expansive way. I don't think you can really go back to sort of like the Davies era Tardises where it's like one level but it, and it's it, much more intimate. It doesn't even feel like it's necessarily got... It's not even got that, that kind of like design of the um, RTD ones, which are very alien deliberately. I feel like this is literally like Capaldi's TARDIS, but then with loads of cool lights. It doesn't really feel like I its think own... It, I, I disagree. I think visually it looks distinct. It's just, for me, it's like the, the space is very claustrophobic. Like, I don't mind the crystals and, like, you know, the big orange lights, but for me, I just wish it was a bit more expansive and, you know, maybe there was, like, some steps and some, some more levels to it because I think 
when they did do that, it made shooting the TARDIS so much better, and you could you could do it. You cut skin it a million different ways. Suddenly, I I do still think that to its credit, this new era, for all its faults, does have the best iteration of the time vortex and the TARDIS exteriors that I've seen in New Who. Every time they go through the time vortex, it looks awesome. Yeah, it, no, it, it looks really like does. they're getting battered about. Yeah, it looks really, really rough. And in a way that I always felt like the CGI of space under Moffat went a bit ropey compared to RTD. Yes. This feels like they're literally like straggling around in some kind of like weird contraption. It was cool seeing uh, the Master's TARDIS flying through space. Although I'm a bit disappointed that once the reveal had occurred, you went back into his TARDIS and the console had just appeared and it was still like that house. Like, why yeah, did not change I mean, it to an interior? Like, I- I get the idea that this guy's a bit rough and ready, this this master. I suppose, they? but... They're a bit hokey. It, the, the one thing that is slightly disappointing is we didn't get a definitive costume, but um, I suppose that was what, what was in was the... Was that what was in the transmission at the end? I presume so, which looks a really good costume, but we yeah. didn't really see him. Because of all the time hopping, he was always in outfits befitting his era. I do like the master in disguises and stuff, though. It feels very on brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, but... the Nazi imagery was incredible. Like, <laughs> it was just so funny to see the master it, first. It, 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 it feels like something the master would do yeah doesn't it um but my i mean to be honest like the main issue i had with the script was just in honesty it's just two things i still think chibnall lacks the knack to fuse the character moments with the action often the action set pieces are there to be action set pieces and then the character moments are it still has that problem where all the characters it was less abundant so because you had more time across this as a two-parter mm. but there was still a weird obligatory scene where all the characters just sit down and have a deep mean, conversation yeah. about stuff. And I, I, I get it. He's trying to kick, make the pace slower. He's trying to make it less hectic. But there are ways to feed those things in together to make it feel a lot more natural than, oh, let's just walk off to one side, divert the action, and have a long conversation. Although, having said that, I do think Yaz was definitely the most underdeveloped character in the last season, and she was given a lot more to do in this two-parter. No, if anything, um, Graham was given the least to do. Yes, which, to be honest, at this point, I'm kind of okay with because Bradley Walsh is killing it anyway, and... He's still the best thing about the show, I think. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's very fun. And all the scenes with him in with the laser shoes were great. Him on the plane really sets up who he is as a character with him like hanging there like, oh God, but also... Oh yeah, that was fun. I like that. I like the kind of... Worst Uber ever. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of faux aggrance though when he steps out of the cancer clinic, he looks kind of awesome when they're like picking him up. He's the only one who looks like confidently like, yeah, yeah this is what I do and what? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but the, the only other thing, of course, is the ending, which has, again, this is a this is an issue I don't think we're ever going to get out of in this era because I think it's endemic in how Chibnall writes scripts, which is full of things happening and then the final five minutes wrap up too quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt for the rest of the season, but I do agree with you, like Barton escaping and... That's a rope for rope happening in Arachnids in the UK. Yeah, and also him revealing his motives were very a bit convoluted. He didn't like his mum. I didn't... I think, like, I, although I did think that scene was cool when he executed his mum. It was cool in making him evil, but I never felt like it was clear why he was evil. Like, what was he, No. What was, what was his reason? Like, because what, what confused me was the Master said that the Kasavin and Barton and him had reached an alliance through mutual interest... Right. Yes. That was their whole setup that they'd reached an alliance through mutual interest. So it was interesting to not see what Barton was really getting out of it. Well, I thought he wanted them for as hard was, Yeah, I thought for Barton it was that they would meld together, and because he was already like what not only like ninety percent human yeah. or something. So I assume what he thought was going to happen was that every human being would get that kind of upgrade. It's a bit Cybermany, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, 
I think we'll see him again. I think that might be expanded upon. The I fact mean, that he disappeared and didn't get a comeuppance. I've said to you, if this is a slow burn, which Chibnall has obviously frequently said he's got a five-year plan, <laughs> if a villain walks away and then we see him later in series, in the third series of this era, yes, series 13, yes. say the man whose name escapes me, uh, Mr. Big, uh, from Arachnids in the UK. Oh, yeah, but say yeah, he yeah, were yeah. to return, even incidentally as president... I would immediately kind of forgive that walk away in a sense because there's been a clear motive in having him walk away. I agree that with him. Cool. Like, like, and, and, you know, I didn't believe in this five-year plan and now I'm starting to think what with this timeless child rap, what with all the little things that this episode did that I think I'm more convinced that there is a plan going into this era that maybe even little things like the fact that the companions look like they're starting to doubt the Doctor and have their I faith agree. tested. Maybe it's the case that in the first era, the aim was to have them have complete undying faith in the Doctor. And the plan is a bit like, because he did this in Broadchurch, you know, muddy the greyness over time. Give us very Im- obvious black and whites and slowly muddy that and make it grey. If it wasn't planned that they were going to bring in all these elements, like to start bringing in Gallifrey, the Master, to start having the companions really sort of like delve into the Doctor's history, I think they did a tremendous job of hiding it, because the way, like, um, Graham says, like, oh, we've asked her a few times, she always kind of skirts around the issue, makes it feel like, without retconning the last season, they didn't really speak about it, it feels like, oh, well, now we have an answer as to why it wasn't spoken about in the last series. I mean, we were talking about this, this is purely just speculative, but from what the tone of this series feels like to me, the more and more I think about it, that maybe the last series there was a bit of a nervousness at the BBC about some of the reception of the Moffat era. Now, we, we're obviously a big champions of the Moffat era, but there's no denying that a lot of people didn't like it. Ratings were falling, and the number one criticism that Moffat was getting was, it's too complicated, it's not user-friendly, yeah. it's not beginner-friendly. So maybe someone at the BBC, maybe even Chibnall, you know, someone went, this has to go back to basics. And they took back to basics as going so back to basics that we had no major villains, no returning villains. And I don't necessarily think you need returning villains inherently. But you need I think arcs, don't you? you? You need arcs, and you need you need some some level of threat level. Do you know what I mean? And and, and the monsters weren't there. Tim Shaw didn't do it for you? No. <laughs> it was too light of tone. And when it was trying to be serious, it was too sort of playground philosophy. And yeah. this just felt, this felt more mature. It felt like something that a kid could watch and come into school after episode one and go... That was awesome. Yeah, and like yeah. like we did when we were kids growing up on the RTD era, and I do think that towards the end of Moffat's era, as much as I loved the Capaldi years, maybe we lacked that slightly. I agree. That, that kind of playground discourse, and I, I think even though you know we still watch it, and we're in our twenties, and it is a family show. Um, I think the magic of Doctor Who when you're growing up is that it's a kids show, but it feels like it's for adults because you know there's always a, a big body count and these kind of like nasty concepts are being played with so to see um that kind of harken back to that what we got in the rtd with you know the master um just slaughtering people and being a nasty fucker and you well, know, kid, actually putting the doctor in danger kid, the, the number one problem that people have with making kid shows is they they presume a sort of an unintelligence of the audience and the number one thing a kid hates is to be patronized mm. and this didn't feel patronizing the way that i felt like and i like and I'm, I'm a big fan of the historical episodes in classic who i really like things like aztecs and things like mm. that but i felt like things like um, particularly um, Demons of the Punjab felt like it was sort of trying to educate kids on an issue which I think is important it's important to learn about partition but not kind of going deep enough or intelligently enough to really say something about yes, that issue yes. and it felt like this episode was playing with complex more complex comple- concepts yes the, the Google parody was thinly veiled and the attacks on Google and Amazon yeah. were thinly veiled but this felt like something like Age of Steel or Rise of the Cybermen where there's a clear 
discourse, but it's not being lectured at, and it's not being patronised. It's just a backdrop to a good science yeah, fiction story. It doesn't get in the way of the adventure. No. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Did you enjoy it, Chris, overall? Yes. Um, I, I think that was comfortably, as a two-parter, the best story of Whitaker's era. Shall we um, bring back our rating system from Lucas Talking, <laughs> which I believe was skimmed milk, semi-skimmed, and then full-fat milk? It, it's, it's hard for me because... I'm going to give it full-fat milk... The problem with this three-tiered rating system is semi-skimmed doesn't seem semi-skimmed seems harsh. Full fat seems. You got to remember too that generous. I gave arachnids in the UK full fat milk. <laughs> you got to remember that. But I, I, I mean, I still I would defend that story other than its final like ten minutes because I think it's really fun. It's a fun romp, yeah. But I, I, I think I've got to go the same. And I don't just think for me it's retroactively like well it was better than eleven, so the aggregate that I judged dot two by is lowered. I, I actually think this was good entertainment, and I, I actually agree. think it was. I think it was. Of a good caliber that I would has made me feel confidently that maybe going forward this series is legitimate course correction in a way that I could not have anticipated. I still think it's all to play for. Um, I think how the next couple of episodes play out is going to be really key because, of course, last year we were saying a similar kind of thing with Woman Who Fell to Earth. Although I do think this was a lot stronger than Woman Who Fell to I, Earth. I I agree. Um, so yeah, I would, I would give it full fat milk. You give it full fat milk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the issue for me where the series really fell apart because we were we were on board with the series. I would say, even though we had some misgivings about the ghost monument and there were a few niggles with Rosa, I think we were on board until episode five. And I think that I was agree. when the Tsunga conundrum. And at that point, we still hadn't got a classic episode. And from there, it was when the individual episodes came in from other writers. Oddly enough, that I started to lose a lot of confidence with yeah. the series. And other than. Witchfinders, there wasn't really an episode post-Arachnids that I actually enjoyed at all. Yeah, I agree. And I'm slightly concerned that three of the writers here are from the past series. However, I do think that Edheim, other than Witchfinders, I think that Edheim and Peter McTee did helm of that back half of the season, the two stronger episodes of that mm. back half in It Takes You Away and Kablam. I don't think the necessarily the standalone episodes... Were awful, like, like as you say, like stuff like it takes you away, Kablam, which one is they were they were fun, um, but it, it there was just there was no arc driving the series. I think that really hurt it. I mean, watching this two parter, yeah, it's the opening to this season, but it could have just as easily been the finale to last season. I mean, if you'd stripped out a couple of the lamer episodes and maybe you know, like, bumped up Resolution and which finders and that earlier in the season, and then had Spyfall end the season with the companions asking questions which we were begging for the answers to, you know, like, oh, how come they don't know about Gallifrey and where she's from and all that kind of stuff. I think that would have made it for a far tight season. Also, ending the season on the Master would have been cool, although we have, of course, had that two out of the last three seasons. So yeah. that would have been a bit retired. But I, I think in terms of a premiere to a second season for a, a Doctor... Or a second, you know, um, for an era. I actually think, in terms of New Who, this is second only to Impossible Astronaut. The playing field isn't actually that great when you actually think about it. Like, it's competing with Smith and Jones and which is familiar. But I, I, I think as an opening two-parter, that was very strong. It wasn't Impossible Astronaut level, but it, it, it made the series feel epic and ambitious. And it set up loads of in, interesting mysteries that make me think, I can't wait for Sunday. And I, I oh, honestly yeah. don't think I've thought about... Even during Series 10 of Doctor Who... There was not really, other than the ending of Oxygen, where I ever felt, and the ending of World Enough in Time, where I ever felt, I can't wait for next week. This is the first time, especially it's been, it's after been part a long one, time, isn't it? that it's I've gone, I'm really excited. And after part one, yeah. I was so excited, and I thought, they're going to throw this all away, don't get too excited, and they <laughs> didn't. Yeah, I was still cautiously optimistic going into uh, Spyfall part two, but they, I think they really did knock it out of the pocket. And also, like, 
as as we said on the last kind of series of Loki's talking, you know, if if it turns out to be good, um, that's fantastic. There's no joy in disliking Doctor no, Who's there. I saw a few people kind of who seemed still disillusioned with it, but it just seemed to be a kind of a a bit of an anti-Chibnall parade a lot of the time. And I feel like sometimes, mm. you know, it is, it's it's nauseating to see a show that you like fall into decline. But at the same time, I'm never sitting here and you're never sitting here thinking, oh, I can't wait for it to be bad. Like, I'm not... <laughs> even, even during Series 11, right, if the Battle of Rams Court off Colossus had been a classic, it wouldn't have saved the season. I wasn't set in there thinking, oh, it's going to be bad. I can't yeah. wait for this yeah. dumpster fire. Like, I'm always hoping week to week that it's going to be good. Yeah, I mean, I really want next week's episode to be great. Got a lot of time for James Buckley, especially with that green wig. And it's, written, it's written by Ed Heim as well. Again, it takes you away. So I'm, and, and my issues with It Takes You Away came down more to it had too many ideas. So let's hope yeah. that he's pushed something together here that actually is a bit more coherent. Because that mm-hmm. was my biggest issue with It Takes You Away. It was an incoherent story. But the concepts were there and the imagination was there more than most episodes in Series 11. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic here. Although Doctor Who does have a big history of doing a really good opener and then absolutely <laughs> throwing it in the bin yeah. with Curse of Black Spot. Um, I am a bit worried it's going to pop up and be Curse of the Black Spot, but here's hoping it's not. <laughs> no, did you uh, always want to do a Doctor Who uh, episode set on a uh, on, set oh, on, on a resort. resort? I did, I did. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy you remembered that I said that to you. Yeah, um, yeah. I was a bit sad when it came up that they were on a holiday resort. I was like, damn. Yeah, it's just a bit Never of like, to do that if I ever, you know. I suppose they kind of did it at midnight, and they did it kind of in Paradise Towers. But I know what you mean, like more that of a... kind of, uh, you know, like tropical beach kind of resort. Yeah, yeah. I think it should be a fun. Uh, fun visual. I mean, I always thought it ever since I played the original Ratchet and Clank. I think it's Pokotaru. Um, is the resort level that you play and it gets overrun by monsters. I was like, well, that would be a perfect Doctor Who episode. It's just fun. It looks fun. It looks it fun. It looks fun, yeah. It looks fun. And you know what? That's a better logline than half the episodes of Series 11. Not to keep macking on Series 11, but it is the worst series. It's a better logline than half the Do you think perfect. it's worse than Series 7? Series 11? I think Series 7, in terms of like some episodes that I just loathe with every mm. fibre of my being, like Rings of Akaten, yeah. like Hyde, a Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS... Oh, but bro, I think, I'm, get, I'm I getting think, NARM flashbacks. I, think the actual, I actually think the uh, one, the first half of Series 7 is a lot stronger than the second half. I really my gripe to Series 7 comes to Series 7B. I'll even yeah. forgive the two Chibnall episodes. I really like Power of Three. I've, I've always really liked it. Yeah. I like A Town Called Mercy. I like, you like Osama the Daleks a lot. I like Angels Take Manhattan. You like Angels Take Manhattan. Like, and even, um, what's Chibnall's other episode? The uh, Dinosaurs on a spaceship. spaceship. It's fun. There's nothing even on Dinosaurs of a Spaceship quality on Series 11. I don't think there's any corkers other than Tusanunga Conundrum as bad as um, Rings of Akaten and oh Journey to the Centre of the Ties. I don't think there's anything as woeful as that. No. But I think Series 11 has so many fundamental flaws. Like, the Impossible Girl mystery is rubbish because it doesn't get resolved well, but it's interesting as a... Well, you were telling me you didn't like all those After Effects doctors? No. And, uh, no. God, when That's was that? Awful. 2013? Yeah. Feels like a lifetime there's ago. There's context it? that I can add to Series 7 that can kind of, oh, you know, Moffat doesn't like it because he had the 50th anniversary, which doesn't make it better. But there's yeah. some contextual things that I'm like, oh, okay, versus Series 11, which is Doctor Who was delayed again. We waited so long. Chibnall did so many press releases where I was like, this is awesome. Like when he was talking about we need to compete with Netflix, we're not mm. competing with other BBC shows or ITV shows. I thought that's. That's brilliant. That's exactly what I want to hear. It got me so... Even though I didn't rate Chibnall as a writer, I thought his ideas that he was going to bring to the series were going to be really fresh. And it just felt so boring. And it felt phoned in by a committee. It did feel phoned in. 
and it just felt it like I I I I think on reflection, I think I do actually rank it lower than seven because there are episodes of seven that I'll revisit, and there aren't episodes of yeah. eleven other than the premiere that and I would even things like the Snowmen. I think is a really great special. Yeah, um, I mean, I've got a lot of time for the Crimson Horror. You hate it, but that's for another episode, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'd be ha- more than happy to dive back into the Crimson Horror and then uh, talk about it on the podcast. But maybe, maybe once Series 12 is wrapped up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, oh, unless we just, you know, each week rather than watching Series 12, we watch Series 7. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to watch Hyde again. No, no, I don't ever want to... I uh, remember unless the... you guys want us to watch it, you know, because we're gluttons for punishment. <laughs> the first time I watched Hyde, I actually thought it was quite good. And then every time I've rewatched it, it's the opposite of the God Complex, which I didn't like that much. When I first watched it, and then every time I've rewatched it, I've been like, "This is really good." Yeah. It now cracks my top twenty new Who. Whereas, like, hide every subsequent viewing I've had of it is so it's so boring. Well, I think it never helps when that's the episode, particularly like with Kablam, which I thought was okay in the end. I had a similar kind of vibe with Hyde where, you know, the the pre-release reviews were like, oh, this is one of the best episodes of the season. And it, like, it just turned out to be underwhelming in both cases. Yeah. And it's got one of the worst Smith performances. I mean, the whole of Series 7 is just a straight flanderization of the Doctor, isn't it? Of yeah. The 11th Doctor. But well, there'll probably be a video essay on that at some point. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Irons um, been in the fire for a while. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, speaking of irons in the fire, uh, maybe we should share on this podcast some of the cool ideas we've got coming up uh, for in the next coming month uh, with some of our videos. All right, well, before we close Chris off. has got a video um, that's entirely dedicated to my balls. Um, I'd like to clarify that that's not coming out. Um, well, we, we, we are touching a few things. We're doing more Star Wars videos. We've got a video on The Simpsons, Family Guy, and we're going to be covering some DC movies as well. So we've we got will. Quite a few, we will uh... be covering uh, the original Wonder Woman, uh, Aquaman, which our good friend Jabari Jefferson has been hoping yeah, for, I, praying for, for I, a long time. You know time. what? I hope he's actually listening to this. Yeah, um, we have been really getting around to it. And you know what? If he hadn't have kept messaging, like, this is no sarcasm at all, it, we might have forgotten. So actually, yeah, Jab- yeah. in a way, Jabari, who is a frequent fan of ours, a big fan of ours, actually. He's he always commenting, asking about the Aquaman video. Yeah, and, and also uh, he's always asking, he's always putting positive things. He's, he, I think I think I would accurate describe him as one of our biggest fans, in all honesty. Oh, and, I, I, um, I love his tenacity in wanting that video. And it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely come humbling, really, isn't it? Like, you know, the, 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 a person would want us to talk about Aquaman that much. Uh, I love it. And it, it's definitely coming. Yeah, it will be coming, Jabari. Um, and then I think, yeah, as you say, more Star Wars content, a few more lightsaber duels. Yes. Um, Maybe a few that some of you listeners have commented for, yeah. <laughs> Without uh, giving anything away. <laughs> and um, I think we'll be doing, um, I'll invariably do another drag race video at some point, uh, much to, uh, you know, some of the definitely, chagrin definitely. of some of the people in our feed. But uh, <laughs> I think we good. We like to cover a diverse range of topics, don't we? There'll probably yeah. be some more reality TV. Uh, definitely some more Doctor Who I mean, video essays. That's the reason we haven't actually put out a video this week is we've just been spending some time writing and like planning the schedule for mm-hmm. next year so that we can kind of take 2020 with a bang. So Yeah, it was definitely nice to have a little break over Christmas, wasn't I it? I think so, um, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I think that's about it for our very first... I'm sorry, 100th episode of the Full Fat Podcast. Um, we're so glad that we could reach episode 100 and uh, pretty much put it off without a hitch, wouldn't you say? I would say so. Yeah. Although a hitch would always make it better. Um <laughs> I've got my 2004 copy of that hit movie in my DVD shelf. Would you like me to stop talking, Chris? Uh, no, 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 not so. You, you carry on talking about Hitch. Uh, probably the best rom-com since Casablanca. Well, you know what? I think um, we'll end the podcast on a quote from Hitch, which I always love. And it's, uh, no one wakes up and thinks, my God, I hope I don't get swept off my feet today. And perhaps if you've enjoyed this uh, podcast, you've been swept off your feet by the podcast. <laughs>